Welcome to the Dutch Podcast, where integrative medicine providers and patients can learn about hormones and explore the body's most complex communication system. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Smeaton, Chief Medical Officer for Dutch. In this season of the Dutch Podcast, you'll hear from some of the brightest minds in integrative healthcare as we share new perspectives on hormones and challenge a few common misconceptions you might have heard in some circles. We'll bring you cutting-edge education ranging from beginner level to advanced, along with the validated research to back it up. Be prepared to think differently and deepen your understanding of how functional hormone testing can profoundly change the lives of patients. The education continues when you become a registered Dutch provider. Sign up today to gain access to the vast educational resources that are available, including the Mastering Functional Hormones Testing Course and the Dutch Interpretive Guide. These resources are available for free when you register for an account. So visit dutchtest.com providers to get started today and take the first step to becoming a hormone expert. Hi, and welcome to the Dutch podcast. Today's episode is a juicy one. You are going to want to have your notebook and pen ready. We are going to be talking about all things thyroid dysfunction, and we're going to talk about the hormones that are upstream, like the HPA axis and cortisol that can disrupt thyroid function. And then also talk about all of the hormones downstream, especially reproductive hormones and how the thyroid can kind of play nice or not play so nice. What I find is that a lot of women in the perimenopausal period or even as they're going through that transition, they'll come in, you know, complaining of changes in their menstrual cycle or they're having some insomnia or even some hot flashes. And a lot of times people just think that's your sex hormones, uh, but it could be low thyroid. And it, because that's the effect that it would have on your sex hormones. Dr. Filomena Trindade has a whole body approach to tackling thyroid dysfunction. And then we don't even think about, in conventional medicine, about checking antibodies. And thyroid antibodies are such a huge issue because more and more we're seeing autoimmune thyroiditis. And then she wraps up with so many juicy, actionable tips. Just wait until you hear how much fiber she thinks women should have in their perimenopausal range. I just couldn't even summarize all of the juicy things we talked about today. So I am so excited that you're here. Let's go ahead and get started. Dr. Filomena Trindade is a physician, teacher, author, and a lecturer in functional medicine. She's a member of the faculty at the Institute for Functional Medicine and the fellowship program in metabolic medicine at Metabolic Medical Institute. She graduated from the UC Davis School of Medicine and completed residency training at UC San Francisco and Santa Rosa. Dr. Trindade has been in practice for over 24 years, and but before starting her own practice in 2004 in functional medicine, she was the medical director of a nonprofit organization that catered to the underserved. She's currently active in her Saudade certification program and in mentoring other healthcare providers, and she also offers health retreats in the Azores, her homeland. I definitely hope we get to cover that, Dr. Trindade. Uh, but first, thank you so much and welcome to the Dutch Podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I'm so happy to have you here. And today we're going to talk about something that is such a big problem. You know, I work with women primarily and I, we see so much thyroid dysfunction. And so I'm really excited to cover this topic with you today about thyroid dysfunction and how that impacts sex hormones and the HPA axis. So can you start by just kind of sharing, lay the groundwork for us on the basics of the thyroid? You know, what are its key influences on our health? Why is it important? 
Why should we know about the thyroid? Well, just like you mentioned, I think it's really important that we look at um, hormones in, in, in a sense, um, how they interact with other hormones. So I really believe that it's all about a symphony. Hormones are like a symphony. They have to be sort of fine-tuned in of them in of themselves, and then they have to be making beautiful music with each other, with all the other hormones. And thyroid in particular, um, I find it's really important that we look upstream and we look downstream. And when, we, when I think of upstream, uh, it's not just about what's going on at the level of the thyroid, right? Because thyroid makes two main hormones, three if you count calcitonin, but mostly T4, very little T3, only about 5% of what it makes is T3. Um, and it's, it's under the sort of action of the TSH is coming from the anterior pituitary, which itself is under TR, the, the action of the hypothalamus or TRH. So it's sort of a series in a sense. Um, and then we know that the predominant amount of T4 that's made needs to be then activated or converted to T3 because only T3 is active to do work, basically. I always think that the body makes hormones in its stored or storable form, and then whenever we need them, they're activated. So in this case, T4 has to be converted to T3 in the liver and the kidneys. But when I think of upstream, I really think about other hormones because I feel like when we look at the symphony, we have to look at them in order uh, because some, even though they all interact with each other, some have greater effects, right? So to me, upstream from thyroid is the HPA axis, the adrenals, but really we're thinking about the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis as well as insulin. And then to me, downstream from thyroid is the sex hormones. It doesn't mean that they don't that the thyroid doesn't affect the HPA axis. It does, but there's more effects on the thyroid from the HPA axis. I feel like than vice versa. And so when we're thinking about this whole symphony, I feel it's really important to also look at what are some major hormones, or in a sense that we should be looking at them in a certain order. So with so to me, thyroid is kind of sort of in the middle because. Upstream, you have the HP axis and what's going on at insulin because insulin has major effects on all other hormones, but particularly on the HP axis and on thyroid. And then to me, downstream is more the sex hormones and how we metabolize those sex hormones. That makes a lot of sense. So maybe we can start by talking a little bit about the upstream effects. You mentioned the HPA axis having such a strong impact on thyroid function. Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm just going to give you an example uh, because this is, uh, I think sometimes patient cases kind of tell us all and, and really uh, I feel it's the way I really drive home points to myself or how I learn. So I recently had a patient that came to me who was diagnosed with hypothyroidism. Her um, thyroid antibodies were not checked and she was started on T4, synthetic T4, so levothyroxine. And she felt horrible. She actually felt worse than when she first went to the doctor with her complaints of just brain fog and not really being with it and fatigue, gaining weight, not able to lose it, having some menstrual irregularities. And once she started the T4, you know, the doctor told her, oh, you're going to feel a lot better. She actually felt much worse. She went back to her primary and he basically said, you know, there's something wrong with you. Bottom line. 
But really what happened is that she had severe, pretty severe HP axis dysfunction. She was still high cortisol. As soon as we added the levothyroxine without looking upstream, you actually made her HP axis worse. You made her cortisol go down because thyroid hormone actually increases the metabolism of cortisol. So she'd been hyper cortisol for quite a while and was probably decompensating already, right? Was diagnosed with a thyroid. Nobody really looked at what was going on at the HPA axis. And she went from being hyper and sort of losing resiliency to going down to, in other words, to being hypo. Mm -hmm. Now, you could argue that probably she was already on that pathway because cortisol is toxic to the brain. And whenever we've been under high cortisol for a long time, the brain will sort of downregulate those receptors and you can go from hyper to hypo. But I would venture to think that it was probably the addition of the thyroid hormone without really looking upstream. So whenever we think of thyroid, we want to really see what is happening at the level of the adrenals and really the HPA axis because it's all about adrenal dysfunction. But adrenal dysfunction, it really should be HPA axis dysfunction because we know, for example, that elevated cortisol is going to block that conversion from T4 to T3. There's a lot of drugs and other things that block it, but one of the main things is cortisol. So it's going to block that deiodinase enzyme, that enzyme that takes one of the iodine groups off and makes the thyroid hormone, converts it from T4 to T3 and makes it active. And I feel like that is such a big part of what we see in terms of thyroid dysfunction, especially hypothyroidism, that is often not even considered and definitely not considered in mainstream medicine. Yeah, I think you're totally right. You know, I see that all the time. And I think about adrenal and thyroid as like kind of like cousins, right? And yes. they impact each other when one of them is misbehaving. Um, it's like that symphony, you know, things are off if the clarinets aren't playing the right melody, you know? Um, exactly. So, yeah, I, mean, I really think that you've nailed it. And, and we really see so much thyroid dysfunction in females in particular, oh, yes. um, that I would venture to guess if we looked at those with thyroid dysfunction, you know, across the United States and did testing on their HPA axis function, we'd probably find a very high level of dysfunction, like I'm sure greater than in the general population. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's why I always think if, if there are symptoms of thyroid, we always want to look upstream. It's not that we don't necessarily treat the thyroid if they really need it, but we need to be treating the adrenals too or the HPA axis, otherwise we'll make them worse. Mm -hmm. And and I yeah. feel that's one of the reasons why a lot of those women will have started thyroid replacement. And usually it's synthetic and T4 only. Um, and then they don't feel much better. They don't really notice a huge difference. Sometimes, you know, just like with my patient, they feel worse. Mm -hmm. And And then we don't even think about in conventional medicine, about checking antibodies and thyroid antibodies are such a huge issue because more and more we're seeing autoimmune thyroiditis. And sometimes even with thyroid levels within the, within the reference ranges, which is not optimal, right? We know that reference ranges have not changed in 50 years. Most labs have still maintained the same reference ranges, even though in, from 2012 on, we actually had a consistent statement from the American Endocrinology Association and the anti-aging um, forums that a TSH above two is not normal and should be treated. You know, we still have a lot of providers that don't know that and don't even 
look at that. They, they're not necessarily keeping up with the literature and they're still looking at reference ranges as normal ranges. And they're not. They're ranges that were used to detect disease. And if you look at the definition of disease, it's 25% of normal function. So if you are 50% normal function, you're going to still be in that range that's considered normal, but that's not a normal range. It's a reference range. And then we have to sort of keep up with the science and figure out what is optimal function. Mm. And to me, that's a huge issue also. Yeah, definitely. And I didn't, I didn't know that the um, Endocrine Society updated their um, kind of recommended or optimal range through a new consensus statement. But I work in fertility and like ASRM, the fertility organization has for a long time recommended that you manage TSH to be below 2.5. That's kind of the fertility rec. So they've ne- they have for a long time not used that 4 or 4.5 upper limit of normal, but it's interesting to see that generally for the general population, that's also shifting downward and and really necessary because I think that a lot of patients get written off who have oh, yeah. really clear thyroid dysfunction, but they're at 3.5. Exactly. There was a recent study actually looking at elderly patients and saying that because thyroid hormones can do such harm on cardiovascular system and arrhythmias in particular, that we should wait until FTSH is of eight. And I'm like, wow. that's crazy. That makes no sense. And first of all, thyroid hormone, putting someone on thyroid hormone who really needs it, that is not going to create a arrhythmia. I mean, I've looked at the studies, but it, and just like putting someone on thyroid hormone, as long as you are not making them hyperthyroid, it's not going to affect their bone health. Right, but we're still told over and over. I mean, anytime I start a patient over the age of 60, particularly women on thyroid replacement, if I'm using their insurance to provide, you know, their T4 and T3, I get a letter from the insurance saying, Do you realize that you're putting your patients at risk for osteoporosis and an arrhythmia? And this is crazy, but it's sort of where we're at, unfortunately. And just like. Just like that consensus statement, you know, hasn't really been followed and a lot of doctors don't know. And some of them are not really keeping up and they're still applying sort of some of the old rules that if they're within the reference range and they're normal. And a lot of times my patients will say, well, my doctor told me it was normal. And then my question is, well, what's normal? Because that, that's not a normal range. It's a reference range. And then we have to figure out where the science lies within that. I was just saying how important the function of thyroid hormones are in, you know, the body, not just metabolism, mm-hmm. but you just mentioned fertility, right? Breathing, our digestion, our body temperature, you know, cholesterol, for example. You know, so many women in the perimenopausal period will be put on a statin because their LDL is elevated and their total cholesterol is elevated. And it's really because they have a low thyroid, but it's never subclinical or hasn't been diagnosed. Right. So it just has so many effects. Definitely. So I want to call attention to a couple of things you said. The first is that kind of. In- importance of having an appropriate, I'll say an appropriate reference range and an appropriate comparison that's like more individualized. So one thing I think about is kind of the analogy I use with my patients when we talk about this, and this is really with any lab, but it's very applicable for thyroid, is that let's say we had to create a reference range for normal female shoe size, right? What they would do is take a look at all the women across the planet, measure their feet, 
And then they would create a bell curve for like the lower, the bottom fifth percentile and the upper 95th percentile. So essentially you'd be looking at like probably a size 5.5 to a 10.5, let's say. Okay. Right. Yeah. Can we all agree to that right. so far? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I am a size seven shoe. If you give me a size 10, which is inside the reference range, I'm going to be pretty uncomfortable. And likewise, <laughs> if you're a size 10 shoe and that's your optimal, that's your perfect little reference range there. And someone tries to slide you into a size six, it's going to really hurt. And so I think that we need to think about, or people need to gain a better understanding of how reference ranges are set and really understanding that your individual optimal range is probably much narrower than this population-based reference range. And so you're screening for disease. Like, would it be a disease to be below a five and above a 10.5 or whatever we'd said, then you might say, okay, something could be off. But even within the realm of what's acceptable or normal, things could be really off for an individual. Absolutely. Because you could have a dysfunction and not necessarily have a disease. And still, you know, it's not normal function. And I really like your analogy because that makes so much sense. So much sense. I think I'm going to borrow it when explaining this to patients. Because then, and then it's like, it's something that they can grasp. They can understand why, you know, sometimes so many times they're told, well, you're normal when it just means they're in within the reference range. But just like you said, depends where you lie on that reference range and what you're being compared to. I wonder whether it could be valuable for us to be comparing patients to like their TSH at a younger age, for example, knowing that, you know, a lot of thyroid disease is autoimmune related that does tend to come kind of later, like women are in their 40s or later, or mid 30s and later. I wonder if we had a comparison of age 25 to compare to, that might help us better see when things are really changing to be underactive compared to where they used to be. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And also the fact that just like you mentioned, number one, we're seeing more and more autoimmune uh, disease in general, but number two, it increases with age. So that when you're getting close to the perimenopausal period, you're more likely to have developed antibodies, and in particular, antibodies to the thyroid, because it's usually sort of the uh, what we see first. I, I think of the thyroid mm-hmm. in some ways as sort of the Boy Scout, in the sense that it's sort of like carousing and looking to see what's going on, and it will develop um, antibodies to through molecular mimicry to things that could even be our normal tissue and the in an effort to sort of try and protect itself from some foreign invader or some trigger. And uh, a lot of times, even when the thyroid numbers, whether it's TSH or free T3 or free T4, are even within sort of our optimal ranges, if they have antibodies, they may have symptoms. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important that we treat symptoms and not just sort of a lab number, but we you know, look at a patient, listen, and then see what signs do we find on physical exam of thyroid hypofunction. You know, I, I recently actually diagnosed someone just based on loss of the lateral third of the eyebrows, the, of the yeah. outer third, which I thought, oh, it was just screaming at me as I was looking at her. Mm-hmm. And she happened to be one of those where she'd been told that her TSH was normal because it was within the reference range, but she also had thyroid antibodies. And more and more, I find um, that a lot of my patients will have read about this, and so they're pretty well educated, but 
their primary did not um, order any antibodies, even when they were requested. And mm-hmm. I think in many cases, because they don't really know what to do with them. Right. Right. We have, you've got to sort of have to have a functional approach. Yeah. No, it's okay. I see the same thing. And normally antibodies aren't really run unless they're run in reflex, meaning that if your TSH is abnormal, then antibodies will be screened. But it's likely that those antibodies are really the canary in the coal mine. That mm-hmm. might be an early indicator that something's going wrong with the thyroid gland. I mean, it clearly is. It means that thyroid gland's under attack. And I know in the fertility world, we do test them for everyone because even if a patient is euthyroid, like their TSH is normal, and you know T3, T4 all look normal, if antibodies are elevated, there is a separate and distinctive correlation with infertility. Probably mm-hmm, due to, you know, other autoimmunities that are existing elsewhere, like in the ovaries or uterus that don't have a name yet. But the point is, like you said, the thyroid is kind of the Boy Scout. That's the first to show up with antibodies. So that is definitely a takeaway if you're listening is that you should be looking at thyroid antibodies for patients as well um, or for yourself requesting them. Well, we could talk all about thyroid mismanagement for, for hours, I think, Dr. Yes. Trindade, but let's Absolutely. refocus ourselves on those downstream hormones that you mentioned at the beginning. Can you share a little bit about the thyroid influence on the female reproductive hormones? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and what I'm going to sort of uh, focus a little bit more on the perimenopausal woman or the PMS, or the woman with PMS, because we're seeing PMS sooner and sooner. And even mm-hmm. though we know PMS can be low uh, progesterone and usually due to HP axis dysfunction and that whole diversion, you know, of the cortisol. Um, but we also want to consider that if you have hypothyroidism, for instance, uh, you can then affect your sex hormones, predominantly estrogen, progesterone, but especially estrogen, because you can affect the receptors. So you're actually affecting receptor binding. And it seems to happen a little more um, in the perimenopausal period because we're sort of under stress in general, and we have more effects upstream as well, so that women in the perimenopausal tend to have HP axis dysfunction, even if they were in pretty good stead beforehand. In other words, they didn't sort of... um, burn out their HPA axis. They haven't been burning the candle on both ends. Because to me, the adrenals are sort of where the HPA axis is sort of like the reserve when you start to have some dysfunctions in the steroid hormones, because they can make all of the steroid hormones, right? The whole steroidogenic cascade. Um, and But in particularly, what I find is that a lot of women in the perimenopausal period, or even as they're going through that transition, they'll come in, you know, complaining of changes in their menstrual cycle, or they're having some insomnia or even some hot flashes and a lot of times people just think that's your sex hormones uh, but it could be low thyroid and it, because that's the effect that it would have on your sex hormones so I think it's really important that we start to look at that and also realize that women with early menopause sometimes it's not really their estrogen progesterone or testosterone it's upstream it's really the thyroid because hypothyroidism can then make you look like you have lower sex hormones because it can increase the sex hormone binding globulin. And so that you can, it's look, it may look like you have low estrogen, but you, you really don't. Your problem is really what's going on at the level of the thyroid. And then we also, also need to look at 
the other hormones in a sense because they're all working together. Because, for example, if you have insulin resistance or there's issues with your glucose control, but usually it's more uh, insulin resistance, uh, which is sort of early, early on, even before you have glycemic effects, we know that it's going to also affect your sex hormone binding globulin. It's going to lower your sex hormone binding globulin so that you may have more free uh, testosterone. Um, because sex hormone binding globulin actually binds testosterone sort of more irreversibly. And so I'm saying this to say that we need to look at all the hormones, but in particular in the perimenopause, I see patients being started on hormone replacement therapy when really their problem was a thyroid. And mm -hmm. so we want to keep that sort of symphony or that outlook of it as a symphony so that we're looking at um, all the hormones in general. And also, in the perimenopause is when we have that sort of middle bulge as women, right? We tend to gain a little bit more weight because our body yes. is trying to make more <laughs> hormones, unfortunately, right? And, and fat is a sort of active organ, right? It's an endocrine, uh, I, I see fat as sort of an endocrine organ because mm -hmm. it is able to make, you know, more of the, of the hormones, particularly estrogen in this case. It has more aromatase, so if you have testosterone, you can also aromatize it. So a lot of times we see that happening, but you can gain weight just by what's going on at the level of the thyroid because of all its effects on metabolism. So I, I find it really crucial that when we have a woman coming in of complaining of symptoms, whether it's a perimenopause or just fatigue in general, that we have a look at all the hormones and and in a sense, but really focus on how upstream hormones can can affect thyroid and how thyroid can then affect the downstream hormones. And we haven't even sort of talked about estrogen metabolism, which I find is mm. also really important, but hypothyroidism can also affect durability. You know, it actually affects the enzymes that help you metabolize uh, estrogen and it can affect them in the gut and just generally in at the level of the uh, liver as well. So in a sense, uh, a lot of times when you have women with hot flashes, mood swings, fatigue, um, not able to fall asleep as well, or they fall asleep, but they can't stay asleep, we really need to consider thyroid on when we're looking at their hormonal panels. That's really interesting. So can you run through like when you're working with perimenopausal women that come into you with symptoms of hormone imbalance? Can you lay out for listeners, what do you typically test for? So I look at the whole symphony. So I look at what's going on at the level of insulin, um, and in particular in the perimenopause, because we know that women who have more symptoms, more sort of vasomotor symptoms, hot flashes, night sweats, mood swings, um, even if they are on hormone replacement or if their hormones are balanced, they're insulin resistant, and they have more cardiovascular disease. Uh, which is another one of, of my concerns because it's also one of the things I, I am fascinated with, uh, which is the fact that women in general have not really been studied with respect to cardiovascular disease. I mean, many of the recommendations we make were, were done with studies on men, yet we die more and more of heart disease than anything else. And at menopause or postmenopausally, we actually die at higher rates from cardiovascular disease than men. And unfortunately, that's not really uh, looked at. You know, when I ask women, like, what is the number one cause of death 
do you think for women, they still think it's breast cancer mm. and they don't really consider heart disease. So I want to look at insulin. Thyroid, of course, is also going to affect, but I go down. My way is to sort of start insulin first, adrenals, thyroid, sex hormones, and then look at how estrogen is being metabolized. So I'll look at fasting insulin, hemoglobin A1C. If I have high suspicions, uh, I might look at adiponectin as well because adiponectin tends to decrease before insulin increases. Sometimes on my first panel, I may not look at adiponectin. When I have doubts, um, then I may later because if the hemoglobin A1C is anything higher than 5.3, then I know that there's not just insulin resistance, but there's glucose tolerant. And, and insulin is sort of on this whole continuum from insulin resistance to diabetes. And then I look at the HPA axis. I actually have a questionnaire also that I use uh, because, you know, the more and more you do this, the more you can sometimes try and figure things out clinically just on the first exam and on the first visit, uh, I should say, in physical exam. But I also look at a salivary HPA axis and what's going on. And I usually do either four or six. Now I tend to do more of the six different um, collections of cortisol mm -hmm. because I, you can look at the cortisol working response. Heart. And yeah. then I look at thyroid, right? So we look at TSH, free T3, free T4, reverse T3. And I like looking at total T3 because I find it's really important to look at also ratios and your free T3 to your free T4 ratio is really important because sometimes it can look like they're optimal, but when you look at the ratios, they really aren't perfect. Mm -hmm. and um, and then an elevated reverse T3 tells me either they're stressed, even though they may not feel stressed, but their cortisol um, is high. So something is stressing out their body, even though they may not feel psychologically or emotionally stressed. And then, um, or there's some toxins, particularly heavy metals or halides are increasing it. And then I also want to look at your estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, and then your sex hormone binding globulin and albumin, because then we can figure out the free if we're doing it in serum. And then that, and whether I do it in serum or um, saliva or urine really looks is more of a function of sometimes what I'm what I'm doing. And then um, I also will uh, sometimes I may do a full panel um, in terms of the sex hormones. You can do that in the saliva as well, but it really depends on the patient and I try to stay as much as I can with patients insurance mm -hmm. because um, you know I come from the nonprofit arena and so I still have many of those patients that have followed me and uh, so I have a group of patients I'd say pretty close to almost uh, half of my patients that are uh, working class and or they have no insurance still and so cost is you know a big factor and then I have those that I can order any test that I want because uh, finances are not an issue. So I try to be really cognizant of that. So I tend to try and use their insurance with the exception of when you're looking at the HPA axis. You know, the studies have shown that although cortisol could correlate with what's going on in the urine, really it's the saliva that's been better studied. And then you also get to see what their peaks are like throughout the day, right? What is happening through their cortisol curve. And then you can sort of correlate it with um, some of their symptoms. But I find that uh, a lot of times in the perimenopausal period, you know, women have either gotten labels, for example, oh, they have PCOS, or they will assume that the issues were estrogen 
uh, or estrogen and progesterone, but usually they always think more of estrogen. And they haven't looked upstream. They haven't looked at what's going on with the thyroid or the HPA axis. I don't know if you find that, but I do. And, and to me, the perimenopausal period is so important because these all these hormones, you know, they're working in the symphony. If one of them is off, then it's going to affect the whole symphony. Just like you mentioned about the clarinet, you know, if the clarinet's not fine, it's not tuned, then, you know, it's going to affect the music that the symphony can sort of create. Yeah, absolutely. So we've talked so much about this evaluation, this connection, and I think this has been so incredibly valuable. I know our listeners want to know, like, what do I do about this? So can you talk a little bit about maybe even just lifestyle recommendations that you make for women when it comes to evaluating their hormone symptoms to really kind of keep it in optimal function? Is there anything specific that they should be doing from a thyroid perspective? Oh, absolutely. Um, so I think it's really important to look at, number one, sort of what is the big thyroid molecule, right? And the fact that iodine is so important there. Uh, but also, how does it convert? And I try to get as much from food as possible. So I have patients eating lots of green leafy vegetables. I want them to get 10 to 12 servings of vegetables and fruit per day. And I know that when I say that, people think I'm crazy and that seems like a lot. But it's all about how you divide a sort of throughout today. So I talk to patients about using uh, a creamed a cream soup, but you're not using creamed dairy. You're creaming your vegetables. And then you can add other vegetables to it because the green leafy vegetables are just crucial. And when I and when we're talking about that, we're also talking about all the phytonutrients that we're able to provide. Because one thing we haven't mentioned is how the thyroid gland is so susceptible to toxins. And no matter what type of toxins they are, whether they're persistent organic pollutants or they're heavy metals, or they are your um, halogens, for instance, whether it's chlorine, fluoride, or bromine. Um, and the fact that it, it is really, um, I feel like, an organ that sort of needs to be protected and looked at in that way. To me, sort of the best way to combat that is because in a sense, I feel like we live in a toxic world. We're sort of swimming in this toxic soup. And some of it is just the nature of, of today's life and where, where we're at, uh, in a sense, and how much we've polluted our world. And you can find certain areas that are not as polluted as others. But in general, you know, the air we breathe has toxins in it, whether you're talking about heavy metals or not, uh, or persistent organic pollutants or PCBs, for instance. And so I want to arm them as, with as many antioxidants and phytonutrients as I can. So we want a really phytonutrient-dense um, meal plan. And uh, to me, sort of the green leafy vegetables are extremely important. But I also want color. You know, we want to make sure they sort of like the rainbow, like Deanna Minnick says. And try and get those purples and reds in particular because they have acylcyanidins. They have a lot of these um, phytonutrients that are going to help sort of uh, decrease that oxidative stress that could be affecting their thyroid gland as well as any of the other hormones. And then I want to make sure that they're getting soluble fiber because what they're getting from fruits and vegetables is mostly insoluble fiber, which is important, but it's a soluble fiber that works at the level of the gut microbiome. What do you like to use for that? Do you like, like acacia fiber or... Yeah, I like acacia fiber, but I try to stick with food first and then mm. I'll add things like acacia or um, the um, mortified citrus pectin, for instance. But I usually start with flax 
Because right. flax is also going to help with detoxification, right? It's also going to help with glucuronidation in the gut. Um, it's a soluble fiber. I use chia, so I usually want 35 grams of soluble fiber if at all possible. And I'll have patients start low and then go slow because as long as they're um, well hydrated, they won't get constipation, but they can. And, and once you, they do, they, they usually don't like you. So <laughs> I want to start with like flaxseed meal, chia seeds, my, my all-time favorite, which is chestnuts, because chestnuts are very high in butyrate, and butyrate is really um, good for the colonocytes for their fuel, also for maintaining that mucin layer. And other, other things that I may use are um, almond flour, not almond meal, but almond flour itself can also function sort of as a probiotic as well as um, coconut flour. And then I want to make sure that they're staying hydrated. You know, they're drinking at least eight to 10 eight ounce glasses of water per day. And if they don't like water, well, they can add flavor to it or they can do teas, uh, for instance. And they want to make sure also, too, that they're moving. Now they're moving their body. What, what do they like to do? As well as what makes them happy? What gives them an aha? Uh, because I feel like we, we often forget how important it is for us to have pleasure in life. And many of my patients, when I ask them, what do you do for fun? They say, well, I exercise. I do yoga. or, you know, I do Pilates or bar, and that's really important, but I want them to do something outside of that, something that makes them happy or brings them uh, joy uh, and, uh, you know, like a mindfulness practice or, you know, practicing gratitude, uh, but also just trying to find joy. I feel like, especially in the perimenopause, sometimes it's really hard to find joy when you're hormones are going crazy and you don't know which way is up or which way is down and you feel like you have no control of your emotions and your mood's a little off you know sometimes it makes us uh, a bit crazy you know (laughs) and it's hard to find like what what can I do to just to bring some joy into my life Mm. Um, and to me that is really crucial and then I also want to look at how they uh, because a lot of times patients will say you know, oh yeah, I sleep well. I I sleep 10 hours a day uh, or I sleep eight. That's rare, but I sleep eight to 10 hours a day sometimes, especially patients with hypothyroidism, they may say, Mm -hmm. but my question is, well, are you rested? You know, when you wake up, do you feel like you're ready to sort of go on with your day and hit the ground running? And a lot of times they're not because they either have interrupted sleep or they're going to bed a little bit too late you know, they're going to bed at midnight and we need to be in bed an hour and a half to two hours before midnight uh, to sort of help our melatonin levels and keep our circadian rhythms going. So I find that uh, really looking at all those factors, but in particular, a couple of the things I, I look at for the thyroid is I have patients look at selenium and zinc and how much mm. they're uh, taking in their diet because that enzyme that I talked about, the diiodinase enzyme that takes T4 to T3, is selenium dependent and we find a lot of selenium um, deficiency and so I want to make sure that they're getting selenium and zinc especially and some of the B vitamins and vitamin D is also important but in particular selenium and zinc so I'll ask you know are you eating nuts and seeds and especially things like Brazil nuts and pumpkin seeds because they're so important in, in zinc and some selenium uh, and in terms of nutrition that's probably mostly what I do I'm not sure if I've forgotten anything uh, the purples, 
uh, and the reds I feel is really important. So I ask my patients to eat pomegranates and raspberries and blueberries and as often as they can. And if they have a histamine reaction or histamine intolerance, then I usually put them on a probiotic that can help them degrade um, histamine because I find that those are particularly important at this you know, time in, um, in their life. And um, I think one thing that in particular is really important and we, we haven't mentioned and it's a whole other topic all on its own, but it's also, I feel like there's not a, a lot of information being talked or, or sort of brought to the forefront of this, but when we're going through hormone changes, um, a lot of times past traumas resurface mm. and things that we've maybe didn't remember before or we we remembered but we've sort of shoved it so far down because it wasn't conducive to what we needed to do to survive, you know, or was sort of our survival mode. And so that's one area that I feel is really important also to address because a lot of times it will come to the forefront, sometimes consciously and sometimes subconsciously. And the ACEs questionnaires are great, but they're not, they don't address all types of trauma. You know, things like even um, psychological abuse or neglect. You know, you may have a really good score on the ACEs questionnaire, and yet, you know, you've um, sort of suffered that uh, even continuously or as a child, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't really addressed. Because that, I think once our hormones start to, shift that really also affects our neurotransmitters as well as you know it can trigger some memories and sometimes you may not even sort of have the memory but you uh or i should say you don't have a conscious memory because it's in the midbrain but you may not have sort of access to it Uh, but it can affect you know your ability to function and how you balance your hormones as well i was just going to say and i think thyroid is, is also susceptible to that although i haven't seen any studies to show that Mm. really we have more studies on on the hpa axis we do need so much more data that's for sure well i love that you've addressed this with a real like whole body whole person approach because really it might feel complex to listeners but ultimately to really heal particularly thyroid illness immune related disorders like you really do have to take that whole person approach and start with the things that I say are very simple, but not easy to change, like your diet. Um, so thank you for sharing those ideas with us. Absolutely. I, I hope I didn't talk your rear off because sometimes I just get going and I can't stop. Well, you did, but we love it. That's what we like on this podcast is it's, you add so much value to the conversation and really, um, really helping people see some of the actionable steps that they can take. And I love how specific you were. Uh, I'm sure our listeners loved it and will probably rewind it so that they can take great notes and gobble it all up. So thank you so much. (laughs) Um, And and thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. I mean, we've covered so much today. I know I'm walking away with an even broader look at thyroid function. And really, I love how you lay out kind of the order of the hormones that you evaluate for perimenopausal women. And I just can't wait to put that all into practice. So thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. This was great. We are so glad you joined us today for this in-depth conversation. If you want to learn how Dutch testing can help you profoundly change your patients' lives, visit us at dutchtest.com providers. There, you can become a provider and gain access to exclusive hormone education, like our new Dutch interpretive guide and the Mastering Functional Hormones Testing Course, a self-paced online course designed to help you become a hormone expert. 
If you enjoy listening to the Dutch podcast, please help us spread the word by commenting and sharing the show on your favorite streaming app. Also stay connected with us by following at Dutch test on Instagram and Facebook, where you'll find even more news, education, and provider resources. Thank you again for joining us today. Come back next week for more.